this is an important ruling, and it comes down from Ontario's top court, which uh, seems to right another wrong on the issue of domestic violence. And the ruling sends a message that if a man sets out to kill their partner, then second chances and rehab will take a back seat to an actual punishment. And this is a case that centers on a ruling involving a man who stabbed his pregnant ex-girlfriend in the neck, just missing her jugular vein. The baby she was uh, pregnant with died. The Crown asked for a life sentence. He got seven years. The judge in that case said a life sentence would have a, uh, quote, crushing impact on the accused. This goes to the appeal court. They upped the sentence to 15 years. But this is the second time the upper court has now rebuked a lower court ruling on a soft sentence. Three and a half years ago, uh, there was a man who set a house on fire and trapped his ex-girlfriend and two of her children, including a baby. And he got 11 years. And the appeal court said, no, 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 that goes to 20 years. So there's been this, I don't want to say pattern, but when it comes to issues of domestic violence, when you think it should be an automatic life sentence, there have been some very, very soft sentences. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I think this this upper court ruling does seem to want to send a message. I want to bring Kristen Mercer into this conversation, human rights lawyer at Goldblatt Partners in Toronto, also working on law and policy issue related to ending gender-based violence and intimate partner violence as part of her practice. Kristen, thanks so much. Uh, Kristen, sorry, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, no problem. Thanks for having me, Alex. So I know you didn't cover this particular case and not the ruling, but um, this is a um, a man who is, you know, claiming he acted in self-defense. And one of the things that actually strikes me about this case is that there did seem, if you look through the ruling, that there was premeditation. I mean, the guy went out and got an alibi with a friend beforehand. Um, you know, this woman only survived because she played dead. Um, and ultimately the, the baby was killed. So I'm, I'm not sure why he wouldn't have been charged with first degree murder from the start. Why, why it almost seems like there's a benefit of the doubt when it comes to these cases. Yeah. So Alex, I think it's important that I make sure your listeners know I'm, I'm not a criminal lawyer and, um, obviously there's li limited ability to comment on this decision on a specific case. Um, but, but obviously what we know is that, um, uh, the woman involved in this case didn't die. And, and I think that's the reason why the attempt murder charge was laid. Mm -hmm. Although the baby did. And so I think a lot of people kind of look at that and say, you look at the gravity of the cases because they are so destructive. Um, ultimately, when it comes to domestic violence, and I've covered a number of trials, I've covered a number of these incidents, too many. Um, we always come away from them, Kirsten, with the knowledge that there were so many warning signs. There's, it's never a one-off. There are so many warning signs that go missed, don't get checked, or followed up. And it's always after the fact that we say, woulda, coulda, shoulda. Well, you know, Alice, I think that you're you're touching on a really important point. And, and quite apart from the specifics of this case, I think what the Court of Appeal is saying um, in its decision is that we as a society need to be very clear about our denunciation of the kind of violence that happens in intimate relationships. And both the courts and parliament have made it very clear that violence that happens in a domestic context, um, which is sort of inter interpreted broadly to include intimate par partner relationships, um, needs to attract very clear and specific um, denunciation um, from 
uh, trial courts when they're when they're issuing sentences. And I think that's really the, the critical aspect of the decision um, from the Court of mm-hmm. Appeal last week is this this need to focus in this kind of case on this, um, this the, the principles um, in applying a sentence of denunciation and deterrence rather than focusing on, you know, can the can the offender be rehabilitated yeah. or, or other factors that, that I think the trial judge um, uh, considered when, when they established the lower sentence. Yeah, I mean, I think we've uh, almost moved too far into the restorative justice in certain crimes where it's always give them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, there are certain crimes in society, I would put this into the category when you're talking domestic violence, that this, most of these people don't deserve a second chance because their their crimes often are so heinous, if not destructive. And, you know, one of the um, most dangerous times for a victim, as you well know, um, of abuse is leaving. I mean, that that's when they're at most risk. And so when, when courts give out these softer sentences, and if someone in a dangerous situation like that um, doesn't see either deterrent and or um, accountability, I have to think that some women or those in, in violent relationships just won't leave because what would be the upside? You know, if you don't think the system is going to protect you or the police might not be able to protect you, why would you then leave? Well, I think there's a lot there, Alex, and, and a couple of things to touch on. Um, the first is that I think, you know, uh, there are lots of different perspectives within uh, the feminist movement or the movement um, in response to gender-based violence and intimate partner violence about the role of the criminal system. Um, it's a wide spectrum of opinion, and certainly there are some who would agree with you that, that um, you know, that people don't, as you said, deserve a second chance. I think the reality, from my perspective, is that um, most of these uh, sentences, setting aside, you know, perhaps the most extreme um, forms of that violence, murder, and perhaps attempted murder, in most of these cases, these individuals are going to be released back into society. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we do need better tools. Um, and we do need to do a better job of rehabilitating offenders who are convicted of intimate partner violence. And we know from um, uh, the inquest that took place in Renfrew County in, in June of last year, that uh, we really are not doing a good job of um, meaningful rehabilitation of offenders, you know, at the early end of um, uh, their of their trajectory, let's say, in terms of a first offense or a second offense, we aren't we, we aren't putting the tools um, into the hands of people to really try to um, change this conduct before it escalates to the point of uh, the kind of violence that we've seen in the case that, that the Court of Appeal dealt with last week. And I think all of us would agree um, that where people are going to be coming back out into society, um, we do have to figure out ways to um, use the tools that we have, whether they're the criminal justice system or other systems, um, to address the root of the behavior. And I'm really, I'm really, this really calls to mind a comment that was made by one of the children of one of the victims of um, the femicides that were at issue in Renfrew County, in the Renfrew County inquest, who said, what we do right now is, it, you know, it's, it's basically like putting a hornet in a jar and shaking it and then taking the lid off and releasing those people back out into society, you know, as angry as ever, uh, mm-hmm. without any meaningful um, tools, equipment, and protections to stop the behavior. Our, our prisons currently aren't built to fix 
and this is the language that Malcolm Warmerdam uses, our prisons aren't currently built to fix the twisted way of thinking of intimate partner violent offenders who, who kill women that they claim to love or that they claim they did love. And, uh, you know, and I think that that's really an area where, where we're being called on as a society to do better, um, that, that we do know more about what to do in these cases. Uh, so they don't get to the point of attempted murder um, where, you know, um, Thankfully, the woman wasn't killed, but but certainly not for lack of trying by the perpetrator in that case. Yeah. Um, I mean, often those abused were abused themselves uh, once upon a time. Um, it's kind of a, a, a never ending cycle of violence that continues. What are uh, and, and I, I know that you kind of put, you know, work in this area. What kind of um, services are available then? Because I know that there are not enough services, uh, it, period, in general. We're woefully behind in mental health services and, and these things, yeah. but we also uh, with these kinds of programs. And so how much rehabilitation um, uh, service is available? And, and, and I, you know, kids need it too because they're the ones who see it. And if they see it, then often they can become the person, you know, the, the, who caused it. You know, Alex, I think that's such an important point. And, you know, what we know is that um, we do provide services to people who are um, either convicted of intimate partner violence. And in some cases where it's possible and where there's space, we provide um, access to people who are charged as sort of an early diversion um, to something that's called the PAR program. And it's sort of a, um, a partner assault response program with the idea of helping people deal with um, the urge or the, um, you know, the, the fact that they resort to violence in their relationships. But what we know, the program that we currently offer in Ontario is woefully inadequate. Um, mm-hmm. We don't offer enough sessions. It's sort of a one-size-fits-all group therapy kind of setting. And despite the best efforts of the people who lead those sessions, um, you know, we really need a much more nuanced approach. And, and, and that was something that, that we really did shine a light on at that inquest that I was referring to, um, where you have possibly sort of a first-time offender, not to diminish this, but a first-time offender who, you know, possibly shoved their, his partner in an altercation in the same group as someone who is a, you know, 20-time convicted abuser um, and, you know, that's, those aren't the same situation and those people need very different approaches and the tools that we have in Ontario right now don't allow for that. And so we, you know, we have an opportunity to do better. Um, that inquest made really important recommendations about reforms to those interventions. And uh, we need to put those in place because at the end of the day, what, what, what the movement, what the feminist movement and, and gender-based violent movement wants is for this violence to stop. And as you say, intervening early and better yet, even with kids who've been exposed to violence, those are critical steps in preventing this kind of um, violence from occurring. Because at the end of the yeah. day, what that's what we really want. We want this violence to stop. Yeah, not a new crime. Certainly, uh, we've uh, and, and it's there's no point in doing an inquest if we don't start following uh, you know all the measures that are put out and so often get shelved. Right. Very much uh, appreciate Kristen uh, you talking to me. Thanks so much. Thanks, Allison. Thanks to your listeners for uh, your attention on this really important issue. It is an important ruling. And that is uh, Kristen Mercer, who knows quite a bit about this. She's with Goldblatt Partners in Toronto. And yet we're woefully behind on this. Woefully. The numbers are just, they keep going up. They went up during the pandemic. How do you expect someone to leave a situation if they don't think there's a system that will be there to help them to get justice, to support them? 
And on the flip side, you know, try to stop the next one.